Well, we are continuing in uh, the, the minor prophets and kind of remember what we've talked about so far is that they're not minor because they aren't as good as the major prophets. They are minor just because their books are smaller. Uh, and they're typically, they're looking at one subject. And we have, we have looked at a couple already, and now we're at the book of Amos, number three in the line. And Amos is kind of an interesting guy because he was not a prophet by trade. He was a sheep herder and a fig picker. If you, in chapter 7, uh, verse 15, it tells us that, that, or 14, it tells us that he was a keeper of the sycamore trees. And sycamore trees grow figs. So, I mean, here's this guy, and it says that he grew up in a little town called Tekoa. Now, the interesting thing about Tekoa is Amos is going to prophesy in the northern kingdom, and yet Tekoa is in the southern kingdom. Tekoa is about six miles from Bethlehem. Bethlehem wasn't very big. And Tekoa, its, its name in Hebrew means campground. So it's kind of like living in Waterloo. <laughs> right? People go through Waterloo to get down to the campground. You know, and it's pretty, pretty nice. That used to be Mr. Anderson's farm, the campground. That's where he kept his bull. And if you could make it from the fence line to the river before the bull caught you, you had a good day. <laughs> but it was a little bitty, I mean, Nobody, if you went there today, you wouldn't find anything because it's literally in the middle of nowhere. That's where, that's where Amos comes from. And as we, as we look at this, Amos is going to prophesy to the, uh, to the northern kingdom. That's him up there in the top, top square with the three figures. So same time as Hosea and Jonah are prophesying in the northern kingdom. And down in the southern kingdom, you have Isaiah and Micah are prophesying at the same time. And Jeroboam II, uh, Jeroboam the son of Joash, was a terrible person. He, he had uh, his, his great, somewhere great, 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 greats back here, uh, Jeroboam I, was the one who led the, the people, the ten tribes, the ten northern tribes, away from his father and split the nation of Israel. And so now we have this, these folks up there, and, and they just decided whoever was around, they were going to intermarry. They created their own temple. They, they, they had a golden calf that they worshipped up there. That kind of reminds you of back in the desert, right? When, when they lost faith in, in, in Moses, they said, Aaron, make us, make us idols. And so they had just reverted back to that. And at the time of Jeroboam, they were pretty living pretty high on the hog. If you read through the book of Amos, you're going to see it talks about how they, they, were, they were living in, in grandeur, really. They had summer houses and winter houses. They had, 
They had items made out of ivory, which was terribly hard to get. It was awfully hard to get uh, during that time. And along comes this guy, the sheep farmer, to, to prophesy. So let's look at Amos 1.1. And it tells us the words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So he prophesies about 730 B.C. And he's prophesying to this northern tribe, number one, they probably didn't care a whole lot for somebody coming from the south to the north to tell them what to do. Especially somebody who had never even graduated from prophet school. Now, now there really was a prophet school. There was a number of them. If you'll remember back, Elijah and Elisha both ran schools for prophets. And young men would come and they would learn scripture and they would they would sit at the feet of Elijah and Elisha at prophet school. And there were prophet schools all around, but he didn't go to one. He was just a sheep farmer. And, and, he, and the reason I say that is because God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies the called, Right? Because how many of us say, oh yeah, I'm qualified to do that. I, yeah, you bet. I can do that. I can go prophesy the word of God to all of these people. And, and if you look through the Old Testament, that's a pretty popular theme, isn't it? Moses, standing before the burning bush. But God... I can't do that. They won't follow me. Well, just tell them the I am sent you. You use my name to get in the door. I am the power. And oh, by the way, I'll send Aaron to help you out. Gideon. Remember Gideon? Mighty man of value, isn't that what, God, what they said when he came to him? He said, mighty man of valor. And in that picture, you know where Gideon is? They used to dig wine presses down in the ground to squeeze out wine. And during that time, they were threshing wheat down in the wine presses. Now, where do you thresh wheat in those days? up on top of the mountain. You would go up on the Tyus Peak and you'd haul all of your, your stuff up there, right? And you would have your, your oxen that would walk around or you would beat them. And then what, you'd take a winnowing fork, big fork, right? For all you folks who've ever lived on a farm, pitchfork, and you'd throw it up in the air. And the wind blows the dust and the, and the shaft away and the seed falls down. Pretty cool, huh? Now the picture for Gideon is what? He's down in a wine press. He's throwing all of this up in the air. What do you think he looks like? 
He is covered in wheat dust. And if you've ever worked in a seed factory, you know what I'm talking about. He's covered in, in wheat dust, and he's got, he's got sprigs of, of straw all through his hair and his beard. And God comes and says, Mighty man of valor, I've chosen you to lead Israel. He was no more a mighty man of valor, but God said, guess what? I'm going to use you. God has done this. He will call people he will, that we, we may go, ah, no way. But I'm going to use you. And in the first chapter, he begins by condemning and telling all of the, all of the people that around Israel that God's going to punish them. He, he starts out, um, verse 5, he, he says, So to the people of Aram, and then you go down to verse 6, he says, To the people of Gaza, and then you go down a little bit further, it says, I will deliver to Edom, and then he goes down and he talks about Ashdod, and Ashkelon, and Tyre, and Edom, and he goes down and he, he continues on with Ammon. And he go, even goes into chapter 2 and he talks about Moab. And every time as he talks about that, these people are going, yay! Because I want you to look at who he was prophesying against in that first chapter. You see all around, you see Israel in the yellow in the middle, and then you see Damascus and Aram and Sidon and Tyre and Ashkelon and Gaza and Edom and Moab and Ammon. They had been surrounded by all of these people. Every one of those people hated the Israelites. But they also intermarried with them. And they had polluted the line that God had set apart. And every time he would call out one of those names, these, the Israelites would go, Yay, God! Get them! Do we ever do that? Oh, yeah, God, that's really cool. You go and, you go and judge these people over here. Because we don't like these people. And that's what... And then he comes to chapter 2, verse 4. And we get to chapter 2, verse 4, and it starts hitting closer to home. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Judah, the southern kingdom, but they were Israelites. As much as they didn't get along, you know, anybody ever have a brother or sister you didn't get along with? No way, right? But if anybody at school ever picked on your brother or sister, all bets are off. You know, I'm going to take care of this. And then you can go back to hating them later. That's kind of the relationship these guys had. So he comes to verse 4 and he says, For the transgressions of Judah, because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, their lies also have led them astray, and after which the fathers walked. And so I will send upon Judah, and I will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. Okay, God, you're getting kind of close. And then comes verse 6. 
And thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, the northern tribes, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they, and listen to this indictment on the people of Israel, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who paint with the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless and turn aside the way of the humble, the man and the father resort to the same girl in order to profane his holy name. On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out before the altar, and in the house of the, their God, they drink the wine of those who've been fined. And then in verse 12, it says, but you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not testify. Wow. He calls them out. He, he, look at all the things. They're taking advantage of the poor. They're selling good people into slavery. They're, they're taking even the sandals from folks as, as trade. They're, they're, they're beating people down. And then it talks, not only is the father immoral, the father is going and having, uh, having sex with a temple prostitute, but it says he's also taking his son. He's teaching his son to do the same thing. What kind of immorality are we looking at here? And then he says, they were using the, the church, their belief system, for profit. That, that little term down there, uh, verse 8, on the garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. In Deuteronomy 24, 12, it talks about the fact that if somebody comes to you and needs to borrow money, it's okay to take their cloak because that's the last thing you would sell, right? Because the cloak is what they wrapped up in. That was what kept them dry, kept them warm. They said, you can take a cloak as pledge for a loan. But before the sun goes down, you give that back so that they don't freeze to death. So they're protected. You give the cloak back. But what were these people doing? It says, the garments taken as pledges, they stretch out before every altar. They're taking a nap using that which was taken from the poor, which they shouldn't have taken in the first place. They, they look at this, and then finally he says, and you won't even listen. Verse 12, and you commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. That almost sounds like COVID, doesn't it? You can't go, I'm sorry. You can't go to church and preach. You might spread germs. They, were, they had turned so far away, they didn't even want to hear what Amos had to say. And Amos calls him out. In chapter 3, Verses 1 to 3, Amos tells us this. 
Hear the word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Two men walk together. Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? And some of your, some of your translations will read, have they made an agreement? Had Israel made an agreement with God? Oh, yes, they did. Actually, God made the agreement with them. All the way back in the book of Genesis, God came to Abraham, Abram, before he was even named Abraham, and he said, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and it shall be and, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those that bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God made a covenant. And he reinforced that covenant as each generation came along. Re reinforced it with Isaac. Reinforced it with Jacob. Even though by the end of that time, there was, there was 12, right? There's 12 sons of Jacob. And then when they went to Egypt, there was 70. And he said, what? I'm going to make you a great nation. Well, how did that happen? 400 years in, in captivity in Egypt. And God said, okay, now's the time. You've grown big enough. I'm going to bring you back into the land and I'm going to give it to you. And he did even in the midst of their disobedience. And yet here they are sinning against the very God that saved their nation, that brought them out, that gave them the land. He said, you, we had an agreement and you've broken it. And so he comes down and he, and he says in verses 7 to 9, he said, listen, guys, I've warned you. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Proclaim on the citadels of Ashdod and on the citadels of the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults in which her and the oppressions in her midst. He said, I have warned you. Now, anybody ever have your mom and dad? I'm warning you. This is the last, this is the last chance you have. I mean it. Right? Because what had God done in Deuteronomy chapter 28? They were in the land, they went in, and as they went in the land, he said, I want you to stand on each mountain, and on this mountain, you're go I'm going to have the priest de declare the blessings. If you follow me, 
If you do as I've commanded, I will bless, I will bless. Your, the fruit is going to abound. Your cattle won't mis, miscarry. You will have great riches and glory and blessings over here if you, if you, what? Follow me. If you do what I tell you to do, I've got great blessings for you. And on the other mountain, he said what? Curses. If you don't, all of these things are going to happen. He said, I warned you. I meant it. I've given you time and time again that opportunity to follow me. And you haven't. And so we come to, to chapter 4. In chapter 4, there's a phrase that he repeats over and over again. We'll get there. There we go. Chapter 4, verses 6 to 12. And watch this phrase. But I gave you in the cleanness of teeth in all of your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you have not returned to me. Cleanness of teeth, what does that mean? When do you brush your teeth? Well, hopefully. If you follow your dentist, right? After each meal. He said, you don't even have to worry about brushing your teeth because you don't have anything to eat. And then he goes down. Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there was still three months until the harvest. Then I would send rain on one city and on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on while the part was not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me. declares the Lord. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew. The caterpillar was devouring your gardens and, and vineyards and fig trees and olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me. Remember when, uh, when Joel talked about the locusts consuming everything? And then he says, in the next one, verse 10. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with captured horses. I made the stench of your, of your camp rise up in your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me. And then finally he says, I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were a firebrand snatched from the blaze, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Prepare to meet your maker, right? There's a couple movies that have that line in it, right? I'm done. I've given you chance after chance after chance. Did, how many times did he say that? Yet you have not returned to me? Six? Six times. He says, 
I've sent you a wake-up message. You're not listening. And so now's the time. Now is the time. You haven't returned to me, so I am going to bring judgment on you. But, before I do that, before I bring judgment, I'm going to give you one more chance. Chapter 5. Last chapter we saw what? Yet you have not returned to me. Now look at chapter 5. Seek the Lord that you may live. Verse 4. For thus says the house to the house of Israel. Seek me that you may live. Verse 6. Seek the Lord that you may live. Verse 14. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Verse 15. Hate evil... Love good and establish justice in the gates. Perhaps the Lord of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. He says, if you will seek me, I will give you a reprieve. Did they seek God? They didn't. But he says, I am going to give. And he says, it's pretty simple. First he starts out with, seek me, then he, seek me that you may live. Then he says, seek the Lord that you may live. And then he gives us a couple of things. Seek good, not evil. And then he says, hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gates. Who determines what's, who decides what's good or evil? Have you ever thought about that? Who decides what's good or evil for us? Most of us would say the government does. Right? They're the ones who enact laws. Do they get, do they get things messed up quite often? Oh, yeah. D- does the culture today decide what's good or evil? Well, they would tell you they is, it is. Well, that's my truth. Have you heard that? They'll say, well, you, you believe your truth and I'll believe my truth. Well, wait a second. There is one truth. Because even if I decide that I'm going to decide what's good or evil, what am I going to decide? What's best for me? Not, not what's best for you or anybody else. What's best for me? And, and, well, maybe we say, well, then religion. Religion should decide what's good or evil. Well, which religion are you going to pick? Are you going to pick the Muslim religion? Which says, if you're an... (laughs) Good call, Susan. Because we're all infidels. So are you going to pick my religion? Well, if you're going to pick Christianity... Then we're going to say, well, is that the Baptist one or the, or the Christian church one or the Methodist or the Lutheran or the, you know, where are you going to? There's one truth, isn't there? There's one truth, and that's what Amos is going to bring us to in chapter 7.
Amos is going to have a series of three different visions. And in Amos chapter 7, 1 to 9, he talks about these three visions. And as we look at these, I want you to notice for in the first two, the power of one man's prayer. Because quite often we think, well, what, how, what difference can I make? I can't change the government. I can't change what's happening around me by my single prayer. Well, this guy did. He, he was able to save Israel twice. Verse 1, chapter 7, Thus the Lord showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop came to sprout. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing, and it came about when it had finished eating the vegetation on the land that I said, who's I? Amos. Amos prays, Lord God, please pardon How can Jacob stand? For he is small. And the Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Now he is having a vision of the future. God's telling him this is the way it's going to play out. The locusts are going to come. And he prays. And this is not a long prayer but it was an earnest prayer. Please, please God. Remember at at Christmas time when we talked about Hosanna? Hosanna means save me, please. He's crying, Hosanna, God, save Israel. And God says it shall not be. Vision number two, verse four. Thus the Lord God showed me. And behold, the Lord was calling to contend with them by fire, and it consumed the great deep, and it began to consume the farmland. Then I said, Lord God, please stop. How can Jacob stand, for he is small? And the Lord changed his mind about this. This too shall not be, says the Lord God. Twice he prays and God stops and says, I'm going to give you a reprieve. Now what is Amos doing all of this time? He's also proclaiming to all these people, repent, come back to God, yet you have not returned. You've already been through all of this. I have prayed to God. I've asked and he spared you this. He has spared you twice now. And then we come to verse 7. Third vision. He showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. The Lord said to me, what do you see, Amos? And he says, a plumb line. And then the Lord said, Behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel. 
I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. Then I will raise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. I don't know how many of you have ever built stuff. But this is a plumb line. Right? You want to see if my buttons are all in the straight in here? This is a plumb line. When I was in Africa, I was with a young man. He was probably 20, 20 years old. He built tukuls. Tukuls are their main house. They're usually about 12 by 12, and they're all open floor space because all they do in there is sleep. And they're made out of mud brick. And this young man showed up one day with a plumb line and a level. And he started to build. He built a couple courses up and then he stood next to that and he looked and he's like, okay. And as he would go up, he would tack this into the wall. And as long as he stayed true to this plumb line, that wall was perfectly straight. And then he would take his level and he would make sure that each course was level because they all had to attach to each other. I wish Harlan was here because he's used this a million times, I'm sure. That's how you build a straight wall. But if you, don't have the, if you don't have a plumb line, what happens? What happens? Because you know, the reality is what? There is only one true plumb line, and that's God's. Have you ever wondered why the United States has been blessed like they, like they have been? One nation under God. You know, we, it, it's, we are not a chosen nation, okay? Let me just say that. There's only one chosen nation, that's Israel. But we started out with the right plumb line. I want, you to read, I want to read to you the very first sentence, and it's, it's a run-on sentence, sorry, teachers. This is the very first sentence of the Declaration of Independence. The unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America... When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them to another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. Now, the italics are mine. I want you to hold on because... Laws of nature and nature's God has a very distinct piece to it. Though those words were written by, um, by William Blackstone in his commentary on the law in England, based on English law. You think they, they were pretty smart. They're going to throw in, throw it right back in their face what William Blackstone based English law on. 
The very next paragraph reads like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, William Blackstone, in his commentary, wrote this. The doctrines thus delivered we call the revealed or divine law, the laws of nature and nature's God. They are to be found only in the Holy Scriptures. Our founding fathers had a plumb line. And this was it. This was the plumb line. Why did God bless us in the United States? Because we founded ourselves on his holy scriptures. I told you about being in Africa and watching the Tuchel be built. I wrote a, I wrote a uh, three-day training called Law Enforcement from the Biblical Perspective. Now, we went to, we went to first to Uganda was the first place we stopped. We've, we've taught this in Uganda, in Sudan, in Kenya, in a number of other places it has since been taught. They're 80% Muslim. How do you teach law enforcement from a biblical perspective when people are Muslim? Because they don't believe in the Bible, they believe in the Koran. We went to the top officials in each one of these countries and we gave them the, the outline for the training and said, this is what we want to teach. And every one of them gave us a letter that allowed us to teach this anywhere in their country. And it starts out with this. Did you realize that every set of laws that's been written by every society that we have starts with what? The Ten Commandments. Oh, wow, where did that come from? Straight from the lips of God. And so we would go in and, and, and we would teach this. And we start out with the Ten Commandments. And what the first four do what? They talk about our relationship with who? With God. So we start out with the basis of you cannot be a, a really good police officer, a fantastic police officer, until you have a right relationship with God. And then, the, then number five talks about what? Your relationship, thou shalt honor your mother and your father, right? Your relationship to your family. And then the last five have to do with what? Relationship with everybody else. And we began to teach the police officers, you need to get your right relationship with God. You need to have a right relationship with your family. Because most of those countries, all of the countries that we were in, the, the, the rule of not law, but in their society, is that women, wives, were the property of the husband. And so it was okay, it was okay in their culture to beat your wife, 
and if she was bad enough, you could kill her. Their laws had changed to protect them, but that never happened. So you had to have a right relationship with your family, and then you can have a right relationship with all of those around you. You see, it is the basis. You have to have the plumb line right. If you don't have the plumb line right, if you don't use the plumb line, you, when, when you forget to use it, what happens? Okay, you get the picture? It's crooked, isn't it? I mean, you kind of, you want to look, wait, but if you look like that, everything else is out of way. If you don't use the plumb line, you have, you're crooked. God knew that. Listen to what he said in Deuteronomy 32. The rock, his work is perfect. In other words, his plumb line is exactly straight. His work is perfect and all his ways are just. The God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. But they, talking about Israel now, they have acted corruptly towards him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and a crooked generation. And you're like going, well, yeah, but that was way back in the Old Testament. Listen to what Paul wrote. And who's Paul writing to? Oh, he's writing to the church. Ooh, oops. This is where we go from preaching to meddling, right? He's writing to us. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. <laughs> it's right. So that you may prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now, he's not talking about the church or he's talking about what? Society, the world around us, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast what? The word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run, run in vain nor toil in vain. He said, you're called in the midst of, of a crooked generation to hold a plumb line. You're holding it for yourself. Now what does it take to get something back in plumb? You don't just go, oh wait, we're out of plumb, move over. You have to gently bring it back into line. Yeah, is it gonna look funny? But that's what God says we are. We need to have God's plumb line in an evil generation, in a crooked world. And the world doesn't like that. When we hold up God's plumb line, they say, well, but follow the science. But that's not the way we do things today. That was written a long time ago. Well, I got news for you. The laws that God had set down at the moment of creation are still in existence. 
and they still apply. You don't believe me? I want you to stand on top of this, uh, stand up on your pew and take a step. Oh, right. The law of gravity still applies. Oh, imagine that. Right? The law of thermodynamics still applies. Our earth still spins in perfect motion from the day that God created it until today. He said, I am the plumb line, follow it. Well, Amos doesn't leave us there. If you follow through the rest of Amos and the rest of chapter 7, they kick Amos out. In the, the middle part, the, and who kicks him out? It wasn't the government. It was the chief priest. Amazing comes in, and he, and he says, get out. We're not listening to you anymore. Go back to where you came from and prophesy back there. We're not going to listen to you. And he says, fine. You don't want to listen to me. And he calls out in chapter 8, he, he tells about that you may have in the past lived a very lush lifestyle. It may have been a nice place to live. That's going to end. And in chapter 9, he calls down the judgment of God on them. What's going to happen? And that's actually going to happen in about 720 uh, B.C. The Assyrians are going to come in, and they're going to haul them off, and Israel no longer exists. The northern tribes no longer exist as a nation. God says he takes them out, but he doesn't leave them there. I want you to look how he winds this up. And remember, when we talked previously, the majority of these prophets not only had something that was going to happen during their time, but he also talks about what's going to happen way in the future and this is what he says in chapter 9, 11 to 15. And in that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches, and I will raise up its ruins, and I will rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, when the mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. And I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them and they will plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will plant them in the land and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I will give them, says the Lord. God has a remnant. But what happens before he can rebuild? Everything's torn down. And God says, I'm going to rebuild. I'm going to rebuild using 
my plumb line. And you know what? We all go through this in life. We can either choose to build on God's plumb line, or we can build without it, and our wall is crooked and it's going to fall down. But if we come to God and say, God, I'm returning to you. He says, I will rebuild it using my plumb line. It will be perfectly vertical. In a world that is crooked and perverse, we need to follow God's plumb line.